so I didn't whip them. What? What's in it for me? We learned it on the last podcast. Oh, yeah. What's in it for you? Okay. Listen, you big Cornish customer <laughs> success kahuna. <laughs> you think you're a big wheel in this, but I have got the emperor of experience for you today. Go yeah. on. Morris Fitzgerald. Now, you and I remember him because he was on the stage at our monetized uh, program in Amsterdam, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I've spoken to Morris over, over the years. He's always got something exciting today. By the way, if you check his LinkedIn uh, uh, profile, he's, he does a great, great newsletter every week that I always learn from. And even I've got a kind of distant connection with him because Morris and I go back to a company called Digital Equipment. Back in, back in the 90s. But without further ado, Dave, I'm going to introduce him. Hello, Morris. Thanks for joining us today. It, well, thanks, uh, thanks a lot for inviting me, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I realize that we worked in the same building at the same time in Geneva with Deck, and you were in workstations, I think. I was. And uh, I was a, a software guy, but I think there were 700 of us in Geneva at the time, so it's not too surprising that our paths never actually crossed. <laughs> but you stayed, you stayed in the area, and we are now talking to you from the shores of Lake Geneva today. That's absolutely right. I went through the mergers of uh, digital with compact, compact with HP, without ever changing. From it was digital moved me here 32 years ago. I'd worked for four years in the Netherlands before that. Well, we did a swap because today Dave and I are in the Netherlands. Now, listen, just before we go any further, I just want to make sure that we give everyone that's listening an understanding of kind of the, 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 um, the, the experience you bring to the table here. So, I mean, you were in charge of customer experience for one of the world's biggest IT companies, HP. And, uh, you know, and then before that, I understand that you were looking after strategy and customer experience. So you did a whole bunch of stuff, but not only that, now after that, you've, you've written books with your brothers and I see the cartoons out there. I mean, you've got sure. a great portfolio career. Yeah, well, I certainly had an entertaining time. I was never in charge of customer experience overall for HP. I was in charge for the 4 billion software division for the last uh, few years, commuting between here and California since I declined to actually move. So I was the best friend of every airline on the planet, possibly. Um, yeah, so that, that was pretty, pretty exciting, which you've, you've given it fairly accurately. I was chief of staff for HP in Europe, head of customer experience for Europe, what, Europe, Middle East and Africa. Um, and I got there in kind of a weird way, and I should have learned the lesson more quickly than I did. It was one day when I'd been chief of staff for EMEA for, I don't know, perhaps nine months a year. I went to the head of EMEA, Francesco Serafini at the time, and I said to him, hey, Francesco, you know, I'm observing this around the way the customer experience work is doing, and, and really, I, I think that it's just not aligned with our strategy and we need to do it completely differently. And he just looked at me and he said, okay, you're in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what, instead or of my current job? <laughs> oh, no, as well. Yeah. So uh, I did that and I made that mistake again later on when 
HP was integrating EDS, which was subsequently yeah. separated. And I asked them, look, I've got my years of project management and customer experience stuff. And, you know, I really think these three things are wrong with the way that it's, uh, that it's being done now. And I think if we fix them, the integration will go a lot more smoothly. And he just looked at me and said, you know what I'm going to say now, right? <laughs> yeah. The first lesson that you're in part is be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I think, I, I think that, that the company at that stage was very much like that. You know, it's like, oh, you put your hand up for stuff, then we're going to throw it for you. But, but let's, drill that in, let's drill into that a bit more because that's a, that's a wonderful way of introducing it. But you, you've really learned some things over the years and, and you know, everyone who's listening by the way should completely follow your blog and read your books because there's so much in there but uh, one of the things I love I love to hear you talk about is you know about managing business relationships and so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about some of the things you've learned. I, w- I will and uh, yes you mentioned the books it's one of my I'm going to call it failures the books su- surprise me and they continue to sell well but the reason I wrote the books was I thought that I could do a mind dump from my brain onto pages and that then I wouldn't have to think about that stuff anymore. And I didn't care very much about whether they would sell well or not, but they did. And that meant that, hey, I got invited to monetize and I got all sorts of um, interesting encounters. But yes, I think one of the most fundamentally interesting things that I learned in relationships is, well, I guess what I've grown to think of as the the marriage counseling approach to, um, to business relationships. I learned this primarily in B2B businesses but I believe it applies to consumer businesses that work on the basis of annual contracts. And what happened was we were having a, a meeting of the Global Customer Experience Council. And one of the, one of the team came in and said, hey, we've just received this exciting new research that the deep the data and and, and analytics people in India have done for us and the results are really surprising and I looked at them and I said wow this is assuming it's all valid and that we can replicate it this is the most unexpected result that I've ever seen in any type of customer experience research. I think, Adam, when I shared this with you the first time, you were surprised too, right? Um, And yet, it's going to seem intuitive off in a couple of minutes. We had this discussion on Valentine's Day. And in quite a lot of countries, Valentine's Day is the day where love and couples are, are celebrated. And it just flashed through my mind that what I saw in the data could be explained by three different types of relationships that we see in couples. And and couples of all types, uh, uh, gay couples, straight couples, every type of couple that you that you can imagine, but couples who are in a romantic relationship. They fall into three categories. First, I think we all know couples 
who adore each other. They've been together for quite a while. We, they're, when we want to you know, refer to our, <laughs> let's call it, recommend happy couples to our friends, we say, hey, look at them over there. You're just never going to see a, a happier couple. We should, you know, should learn from them how all that stuff works. Um, and they're like the promoters in, in NPS. Yeah. Um, we all know couples like that. Fine. We also all know couples at the other end. Yeah, and we know these are couples who, who fight, who bicker with each other. And we notice that they keep fighting and they keep bickering with each other. And when we think about it, and I'm sure you know couples like this, a lot of them even, who do that, and they've been doing it for years, and they're still together. Of course, there are some where it gets extreme and they break up, but there are plenty who've been bickering and appear to be fighting and not getting along with each other, who've been together for 10, 20, 30 years. And to me, these are like the detractors, especially in B2B, in NPS. In other words, what's going on they're communicating with each other. Right. And it's like a situation where in B2B, especially where you're not entirely dependent on occasional surveys to find out what's going on. Um, you know that there's a problem, whether it be through surveys, through your operational data or otherwise, you reach out to the customers. It's far more likely that you're going to be trying to be doing loop closing. Now, the loop closing may destroy your margins with the customer and may take other types of value out of the relationship. When Meg Whitman was CEO of HP, she used to refer constantly to say to people, oh, you know, for our customers, the most important thing you can do is run to the fire. You see a fire, make sure you put maximum effort into putting out the fire. And that made perfect sense to me until the day that I saw this study. Well, okay, I'm, hold on. I'm just going to like summarize what where we're going so far, because everybody, because there's no visual aids here. So the first couple you've described are the people who are lovey dovey. They're you know the happy, happy couples. couples. They're, you know, they're talking. They're, they're the promoters, right? It's and, you know, Adam and Camilla. <laughs> I was actually thinking about leading <laughs> to couple two. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but too, I don't want too much information there. Is it, you know where, where people are? You know, there's there there's a high intensity. Uh, you know, criticism or whatever's going on here. You know, so now they're, they're the detractors. Now, surely common wisdom is if they're detractors, they're just going to flee through the door, right? You're going to lose them. Um, yeah, yeah, right, you, right? you know, you guys must all know some couples and maybe many where that just doesn't happen. And maybe you've, maybe you've been in relationships like that. Maybe you are in relationships like that. Oh, I don't know what goes on at home in your <laughs> in your house, Adam. So, and I guess you know, even the happy, happy couples probably go through their um, detractor recovery processes from time to time. Right? Well, and, you said that there was a third couple. Right. So the third type of couple that we all know is... 
what I call the couples who are in the deadly zone of mutual indifference. Oh my God. Right. And oh, you know, I, I, I've been divorced once uh, a long time ago before moving to Switzerland. And it was, I guess I'd fallen into that pattern. It was, I arrive home, my ex-wife who also um, worked full time, you know, if she was there, I'd arrive home and say, hmm, she's not saying anything. Everything must be fine. And then, you know, get on and, and do my do my thing. And you know, all of your marriage guidance counselors or whoever will tell you that you know, communication is what matters. Now, this group of people corresponds to the, the passives in NPS. Now, the catch when you relate this to the Valentine's Day and the marriage counseling thing is it's the couples without communication that break up. Yeah, I think right? that's... Uh, and, and this is particularly where there's heavy investment in the, in the couple where there's uh, maybe there are children, maybe there's other factors that maybe they have a business together. Um, the, uh, if there's no consequences to people leaving, they can have one fight and it's over, right? But where you've got some, some and that's kind of like the consumer business thing. You, know, you don't like your Tinder first date, goodbye. Um, the, uh, so the fact is that it's the absence of communication that causes people to break up. Uh, that's really and, interesting. And this is what was going on in the data, in the deep analytics that were done for a business that I am allowed to talk about, but that um, was, but I'm not allowed to name. <laughs> what was it at, at the time? I'm going to say it was a 20, $25, $30 billion business. Surely the statute of limitations have passed. And uh, well, I don't know, particularly for a company that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, perhaps uh, I'm, if I could find a, the, the catch is to try and find a lawyer who could give me an all clear on that. But I, I, I feel confident that the point will come where I could provide the full details. Um, but what the data showed, and we were fortunate enough since these were all large customers, that there was a 100% coverage of um, relationship sur uh, surveys. And we had been asking the recommendation question even before, for many years, even before the company standardized on NPS as the primary uh, CX metric. So we were able to see, since we had this 100% this coverage, um, what the customers actually did. And there was over a, an about three year period, there'd been about a 15 point decline in NPS. Yeah. And the business did decline with a time lag that you would expect. I think it, uh, the business, you don't see immediate changes in B2B, especially from when as something from an NPS change to uh, 
a change in revenue because contracts might be multi-year contracts, they might be annual contracts. It takes time for that to go through. So we did see the expected decrease in revenue that we would have expected from our modeling based on a 15-point NPS decline. But guess what? The detractors all stayed. <laughs> the revenue went up a bit with promoters. It was flat with detra detractors. The decline was 100% with the passives. Well, that's powerful stuff. Right. I, I remember uh, you saying that on stage. Now, that was You're right. It's intuitive after a while because it's that non-communication that really... Correct. And uh, non-communication, it's this assumption that we've got that, hey, the people who love us, fine, we'll use them as references, we'll, have, you know, we'll invite them to our fancy meetings and so on. You know, the detractors will run to the fire and we don't need to do anything with the, with the passives. And in a world where you have no competitors, you might be right. But you know, if you're not communicating, with the other party, perhaps somebody else is and has just offered them flowers. Yeah. Okay. And they're gone. So just just uh, on that point there, Morris, I think with um obviously the the when you guys had that 100 percent coverage on, on all of your respondents there, um, and the passes where I guess we're communicating one way, at least to you with a, a things are okay kind of score, but things weren't weren't going back. What about in the worlds where you don't have the respondents like what we we see a lot of customers saying i want a 30 percent response rate i want a 40 percent response rate is that then 60 percent of even less well, than passives yeah obviously and i know some of the good people uh, in charge of the uh, the setup at dhl and we we see that what you what you've seen and what you guys have helped achieve them to achieve in response rate there and the the catch is you can't wait until the next survey and you can't hope that the people who aren't responding respond. And it, it, the, the science and the experience of uh, Bain and Satmetrics has been that it's the people who have the most extreme views that are the most likely to respond. And passives may actually, because they don't care very much, they'll be in a, underrepresented in a voluntary survey. Right. Um, uh, this without getting into questions of Pareto curves, where sure. perhaps you do indeed have 20 customers that have 50% of the revenue and you may have yeah. uh, full coverage. Well, you better have full coverage for them. Right. Um, so it's, uh, it's the science that uh, you guys have entered a, a little bit that at OCX Cognition, we've gone into it in far greater detail, which is you use the data that you've got, the operational and other data that you've got for, for the people who have responded to the surveys to understand the differences between the categories. Yeah. You know, are the, uh, does your Salesforce data show you that um, the passives are actually have you know, far less let's say, interactions recorded by salespeople um, for equivalent revenue than promoters do. Well, I'm going I'm I'm to make sure that we get to that later, if that's okay, Mark. Sure. I think it's a really exciting thing to do. But right. I just, just while we're talking about the relationship thing, I want to 
I'm really going to get Dave to reflect on this. Dave, do you do you see what Maurice is talking about in 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 your life? Because you deal with hundreds of customers all the time. Oh, a hundred percent. And I and I and I think you know, in my, I won't say comparatively short. That's not very nice. Um, but in in my fairly short amount of time of uh, of working in the customer success space and customer experience space, you know, the detractors open up open up a conversation. And 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 sometimes it might it was my biggest challenge going into it was I don't want to see a detractor that feels bad in in my heart I don't want to see that that makes me feel yeah. bad straight away but when you can get to the point and you realise actually some of our most challenging customers some of our best customers will will be very difficult to get them up to a seven or an eight. <laughs> I <laughs> love to give us a five or a six, and they'll let us. They'll all let us know immediately when we need to do better, and then we can do better. So those customers are also the ones that have taken us step by step to, towards improving right. so much. Well, I think it's yeah. um, uh, very much. The, the, the other thing is it's about response. I mean, Maurice, you said that you get a hundred percent response. On that most people are not going to get a hundred percent response. Uh, for but sure, not, but they're not focused on the non-responders. They get this. Uh, well, correct, but you will come. We'll come back to how you achieve a hundred percent predictive NPS uh, through other means. But the the main observation, and uh, you know, I'm an engineer. I like to fix things. So my thing will. Uh, my reaction is always going to be, oh, you know, oh, this new CX data. Where's the problems? I need to fix the problems. But if you're a business, and it's very common to have 30 or 40% passives in, in a, a business. Yep. And if your attitude is, don't need to, don't care about them. Uh, well, that's the whole situation that the customer success approach was born out of, right? Because what does customer success do? It uh, The main thing is, it helps the goal of customer success. And I'm, I consider Nick Mehta to be the number one guru and consider Nick a friend. Um, uh, it's to ensure that the customer is getting the ROI that they expect from the software. Exactly. And having no response and just eh from the customer is, is what you're trying to address. And you're trying to make certain that everybody goes through onboarding and that everybody is... Uh, using the software and knows the different features and that people aren't saying, oh, well, you know, I'd really use this more if only it did this, but actually it already does this, but they've, uh, they've not uh, found out how that works. That's also part of why I feel very strongly that customer success people should not have sales goals. Um, because what happens in uh, when you do that is they only become, well, it's the same, you, you recreate the same problem that led to customer success being implemented in the first place, which is nobody pays attention to the customer until it's say three months before the contract renewal, by which time your competitor may already have given them flowers and they may already have signed with somebody else. So it's, and Customer success was introduced first in the software industry because the software industry um, had more margin than others. Uh, but uh, I've worked with um, 
you know, very superficially with the world's, uh, I believe, world's largest commercial real estate firm helping them uh, introduce customer success because they were getting surprised by people uh, not renewing either commercial leases or other things like security services that they were offering without saying anything. But you didn't complain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, but meanwhile, the Securitas people have given me a you know a better offer. Yeah. It, it's interesting. The, the software business has probably pioneered it most, partly because of the, you know, the enormous money that's poured into it, and 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 the valuations that have gone alongside it to do with the growth of accounts. I actually think this is now starting in other businesses as well. So I think this, oh, whether you call is. it customer success or customer retention, that's what we most- Right, think. right. I mean, I certainly have grown to think about customer experience management as an obsolete terminology and that really it's about customer retention management, right? right? Okay. But I, I would say a message to any and all listeners would be, if you're getting continuously surprised by losing customers, you've probably got a whole bunch of them in the, your deadly zone of mutual indifference. Yeah, I think that's... So, so before we leave the relationship metaphor, um, I really think that's a strong way of thinking about how, how business people are in. I mean, we all know about relationships. If we look at our parents or our children or our own, you know, uh, um, situation. And, and relating that to business, I think, is a, is a really interesting uh, point of view. And I'm reminded by you know, some of the counseling that I've done um, with the Gottman Institute, for example, they're very good on relationships. And they talk about couples who, if they argue the whole time, are most successful if they're able to do repairs. You know, it's about coming back from that conflict because you recognize that there's a mutual goal of success if you're together. It doesn't matter how you get there. Sometimes it's really important and challenging to do that. So that's that's how shared yeah. goals and repairs. And, and, and it's true, I guess, I, I've not, ever tried to work what I'm about to say into the couple's metaphor, but in B2B, it's quite common if there are large contracts that the person who has chosen you as a vendor may have bet their career on that choice. Yeah. So they may desperately need you to be successful. Yeah, I agree. And, and their, their personal reputation is at stake and that can be vicious. When they you know, you're there to support them, but they can, there's nothing, nothing worse than somebody who's been disappointed. Yeah. And listen, let, let, why don't we go back a little bit, Maurice? Because this is great that you got this learning. I mean, how did you start out in in in, in the career like this? Was there, a, uh, was there a light bulb moment that went off? Yeah, there was. And before moving into high tech, I worked for seven years in the clothing industry with the what was called formerly Bluebell Apparel, which was the parent company of the Wrangler Jeans brand and a few other minor brands, Maverick, Sedgefield, and was eventually merged with HD Lee uh, after my time. Um, and I'd been, I graduated as an industrial engineer. I started my career with a stopwatch in my hand and so on. But quite quickly, I moved into distribution, warehouse automation, that type of thing. And at one point, I was the so-called engineer for um, distribution in France, the Benelux, and Italy. And I got extremely interested in learning about well, what we would say call now, what is it that the different customers would want us to improve? 
And the customers at the time, there were no large chains. We had a, a very violent policy of not selling to any supermarkets and, and that type of thing. So Walmart wouldn't have had anything or Walmart equivalents in, in that geography. And we just paid the antitrust fines. <laughs> and that was just our policy. It wasn't legal. And but the fines were low, so we're and, the, just, and the margins are high in the apartment. so you got it. And that's the, the New York Yankees method, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there you go. So, anyway, I, these were generally either small boutiques with big amounts of money, relatively small compared to a huge supermarket and so on, and, and, you know, and clothing stores. So what I did was I asked the sales leader to identify the 10 most important ones in Paris. And I went and I spoke to them face to face. But what I did first was because we were in a matrix reporting environment and I reported to someone in Brussels and in uh, where the European headquarters was and in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I said, this is what I want to do. And I was told in no uncertain terms, don't do it. We already know everything about what the customers want. They want the rivets to stay on the pockets. They want the stitching to be strong. And we just introduced stonewashing into the, into the market, which our laundry provider managed to copyright before we got it onto the market and we had to call it rock wash at the start then we bought him out. Um, so I went in, I spoke to them. I knew what, the, what you know, my leaders told me the customers cared about. And all I did was sort of NPS-like. I said, went into the people and said, well, what would you like us to improve? And the t I won't go into what they actually said. I'll just say the top three things that they said and that were practically universal weren't on my boss's lists at all. Uh, it was, well, I'll, I'll mention the number one. Number one was, if you say you're going to deliver us on Thursday morning, you must deliver us on Thursday morning because I'll have organized either my family or my friends or people from other stores to come over and help me unload the truck so that we've got the stuff for the weekend. Yeah. Uh, and said, so, well, but what about, you know, if the delivery is wrong? I don't care. I need the stuff on the shelves for the weekend. If it turns out to be the wrong stuff, I'll try to sell it. And if, it, if it's not right, then I'll return it to you after the weekend. Yeah, so it was full of stuff like that. And the, but the key learning was, unless you have actually gone out and asked, yeah. you're going to get surprises. You think you know what they, what they want. This is you a dangerous of assumptions, right? You think right, you know, Mr. X Dell guy. Oh, yeah, they want the soldering to be really tight on the PCBs there. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, somebody in in Texas was saying that while you were at Dell, you know. <laughs> but we see this the whole time. Often it's the, you know, it's the N minus one of sales that goes, we know everything about what the customer says. We don't need to know. Yeah, and what, I what, have what to say, time to ask them, and it's really my my favorite technique. Was, uh, my 
I feel that for most CX leaders, especially in B2B, the most important relationship they can have is with the sales leaders. Because and at the the risk of being controversial, the worst possible place for a CX to report is to marketing. (laughs) Because... because marketing is measured on demand gen and sales support. And that means that the CX work gets viewed as entertaining market research. Yeah. But there's, there are no PMs, there is no funding to work on the improvements. Where the salespeople, you know, if CX work is successful and you implement the improvements you've, decide, you've identified, guess what? Win rates improve, retention improves. Who's measured on that? The salespeople. You're talking our language. I mean, the research we just did shows that only 26% of all the companies out there have got their their programs tied to revenue. Yeah, I've I've read through your report in detail, so it's, no, again, no it, surprises. It, it, and it's like you know, this is things things are not changing fast enough. But where, the weather is strongly linked. I completely agree with you, Morris. It's really and uh, you're also correct that in. My experience, the the salespeople, particularly for large accounts, are often the main people who don't want the research done. They say, already know everything. And if you go in there, you'll probably screw the screw up the big deal that I'm working on. Right. So the way that I've found is effective for getting around that is by starting if you're new in a sales team with win-loss analysis and the way to do it is you ask the sales and pre-sales people who are involved in a deal to to give their ratings of us and that particularly if we lost Mm -hmm. and the competitor on a series of factors and then you go to the customer and you ask the decision makers at the customer ends the same questions the experience that I've had is the two never give the same answers. What you've got is, and with all due respect to all my sales buddies, yes, I am talking about you and uh, the many sales teams that I've worked with. Once a deal is lost, the salespeople always explain it by factors that are outside their control. Once the deal is won, they always explain it with, by factors that are 100% inside their control, right? Looking, looking, and, looking through the window or looking in the mirror, right? Yeah, so, and that's human. And the, the way of balancing that out and giving surprises to the salespeople is by asking the customers and then addressing the points where the things are different. And I've found sales teams are universally extremely receptive to that approach. And, and it, you only have to do one to persuade them because you will get the surprises and the disconnect in the first one you do. Because it's just, it's always there. Love to hear that. Hey, Maurice, that's great to hear about how you got to this stage. How about we turn it around and hear about what you think about the future. I mean, you're quite strident about using metrics. What's next? Yeah, well, you've hit the real problem. And I think you guys have taken methodological approaches to improving response rates 
just about as far as they can go. You know, we're at a stage where you, you we're highlighting perfection and thinking of 60% as perfection. Oh, hold on, hold on. 60% contact rate. Now, when we think about B2B, you're talking account response rate. And that's where we go. We want to get 100% response rate. Anyway, I didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, true. Okay, yes, you're, you're correct. I, I accept what you're saying. And of course, the the catch is that you may not get the exactly and we use, the, 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 the correct people and if it's it, impossible to cover everybody you want anyway sure and that, think about think about this let's suppose you're doing outsourcing and it doesn't matter what you're doing outsourcing of let's suppose you sell outsourcing of something um i know more about outsourcing of it than anything else the only people that matter at the customer end for your contract being renewed are the CFO and the procurement manager. Nobody else matters. And yet you will find surveys being done where neither of those two respond. And to me, that's, I don't care if you've got 20 other people responded from the account, <laughs> you know, the, the people, they're doing it. They, people do outsourcing because they want a 20% cost savings. And it's normally the CFO is doing it over the dead body of the CIO who doesn't want to do the outsourcing, um, but they're trying to do it for the, uh, they're trying to do it for cost savings. So it's getting the correct people. And if you can't, you know, how are you going to do this? So surveys are, are certainly not going to go away and they're absolutely necessary for building and calibrating models. Uh, but is you can reverse engineer it if you like, meaning you can understand what is it that's different between um, the, uh, the, the promoters, passives and detractors from an operational perspective. Uh, are you, for example, delivering, if you're a product company, are you delivering are, do detractors have significantly more deliveries that miss that are partials or miss their delivery dates just to pick obvious things um some of the stuff is obvious and some of the stuff won't be but they'll turn out to be very high you know correlations and you've got to work out the causality between well, like i mentioned earlier things going on in salesforce and um contract renewals yep. happening later on down the path or your or win rate changes again with particularly ca categories of customers or you know, upselling and cross-selling success or failure so um yes it it can be done and if you're confident that you've got those attributes for uh for 100 that you've got those attributes well understood for the customers who have responded, then why wouldn't you assume that everybody who's experiencing those things is in the same NPS category? In one German e-commerce company I had some contact with, what was happening was uh, and a big, big one, not Zalando, but a big one, and it, it what they were having was they found in their data they had 26% response rate, I think, and they had over two, I think it was two million survey responses that had never been looked at. Um, the analytics showed 
that one attribute of detractors was that they had been able to pay by a 15 or 30 day invoice and that that had stopped working for them and that they'd not that they then had to pay upfront by credit card with no explanation and they knew that it wasn't because something had gone wrong with their credit or that it wasn't because they'd not paid on time and they would just disappear and stop buying yeah uh, so they were extremely proud of finding this addressing it aggressively and trying to recover as many of those detractor people as possible, you know, giving them vouchers to order again and so on and apologizing profusely. But the catch is the data in the system showed that many thousands of other customers who hadn't responded to the surveys had had the same experience, right? And it seems legitimate to me to operate under the assumption that you know, they would be detractors if we had if they had responded to a survey. So let's do the loop closing the way that we would with any other detractor. Right. So it's you're using traditional surveys to calibrate, but you don't have surveys on a daily basis from every B2B customer. But you do have operational data, operational financial, uh, and other data on uh, from the customers on a daily and weekly basis which also gives you the great privilege that's so hard to achieve in CX, which is your reporting cycle can match the financial reporting cycle of your company. Yeah. If you're producing weekly reports, you can have weekly CX content in it, which you can't normally. Yeah. Right. I really love that. I think taking it, not just sitting, I think one thing that we all are guilty of falling into and one thing I want to definitely take forward from, from this conversation is don't sit around and wait for a response. You know, if you've got a response from one, you can act on all, right? Yeah, and, and, and I think, Maurice, you, you, this is what you're working on at the moment with OCX Cognition, isn't it? Uh, correct. You know, that We've got, it is a startup. We've got the first, uh, is it seven or eight customers at the moment? and uh, using the software and it's been uh let's say the, the what we call predictive nps meaning we're predicting what would the nps be had they answered a, a survey um it's proving to be far more accurate than i expected uh, for the ones where you you're predicting it and then you they actually eventually do answer a survey and uh, you know, within that subset, that, that predictive value is doing far better than I would expect, than I had expected. So pleasant surprise on that. I also uh, think that there's a good chance that, that people in, a bit, in the business might, might be more prepared to even follow up on that, you know, being prompted by a, a sort of an AI bot rather than direct feedback, which can be quite confronting. I think there's a really good, you know, there's, well, there's something cor that and, hands off as well. Yeah. It's being implemented with, um, well, initially uh, iOS and soon Android client feedback. So people like uh, sales leaders or whatever group, whatever stage of the customer journey is relevant are get, getting automatic alerts to things that they should be aware of. Obviously not a trillion alerts, you don't want to have the situation which you get in hospital emergency rooms, which is 
I think there was one study I saw that said that in the for the average patient, there are eight alarms ringing simultaneously, with the result that the staff actually doesn't pay any attention to the alarms. They act on their experience and intuition about what they need to get done. I think that's probably a typical day in the life of a CS person as well, Dave. Right? <laughs> so you can't overdo the you know, the alerts. It's... I think it's I think it's a that's a wonderful way to sort of to bring it home to to, to think about the patients and you know really relate the stuff back to to the relationships. Maurice, I think that's a, you know, if you think about the way that business relationships are, if everybody's like lovey-dovey, they're promoters, that's great, although maybe you don't really know what's going on under the hood. The people that are not communicating, they're the ones to really worry about. The ones who appear to be detractors, the people who are constantly at each other's throats, might be a best ally. They're just challenging and just got to figure out a way of doing that. And if I've got this right, Surveys is a, are a great way of calibrating that big mass of data that you've got, and it's the predictive analytics that are really going to solve some of the problems. Well, I hope so. I think that's a fair summary. Fantastic. Maurice, it's been great to talk to you again. You're always highly entertaining. Now, if people want to follow you, what's the best way they can get in? They can get in touch with you or follow you on, the, on social oh, fire, uh, Follow on uh, LinkedIn is the easiest. I've got my own uh, personal website customerstrategy.net but i don't do much with it there's a lot um and in the archive there i do all of my new postings on linkedin and uh, yeah i've uh, subscribed to the newsletter i generally do uh, at least one maybe two blog like things a week the newsletter is every second monday at the moment i'm using that as a cycle I look and I part, part of that is I'm determined not to be like every other newsletter that I've seen on LinkedIn, which is it's actually a blog called a newsletter, but I've got multi-section things covering a, a variety of subjects. I, uh, I want to thank you for, uh, for bringing that stuff. There's always entertaining stuff in there. Definitely recommend it. Maurice, thank you once again for being a guest on the Account Experience Podcast. It's been a great pleasure. I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with OCX Cognition as well and uh, the future in that. Yep, me Take too. Care. Adam, thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, Maurice. Well, Dave, you asked with him. <laughs> did you get anything out of that? I actually, I really did, Adam. I really did. I think in my in, in my particular role at Customer Gate, just always areas for learning, and I think. One really great thing I took out of that was, and we see it with all of our, you know, with a lot of our customers, and we're probably guilty of it ourselves, of someone's not responding, they're probably fine, that'll be all right, or let's concentrate on these detractors, these detractors are having this problem, let's just fix it for them. When really, it's almost certain if one customer is giving you a score of you know, three, four, five, six, and are having a certain problem, you should really close the loop on that with all your customers. Yeah. Make sure that no one else is having that issue and really get ahead of those kind of things before they do complain or they, or they do go elsewhere. You know, that's a really valuable reflection because we always tell people, go after your detractors first, solve those problems. And yeah, it's the detract, it's, it's the passive. So maybe you need to go and- The non-respondence even as well. Close, close, close the loop with people that haven't responded yet. I, the other thing I took out of it, and, and this is also a real valuable nugget, is that the person that you are connected with in a B2B relationship, Morris said, 
yeah. that person's probably bet their career on it. And in that, I might be putting it a bit too strongly in some, but you know that we've done that with some of our clients that, that they've been really successful with what we do. We've made their career. Yeah. And they go on to do something else, you know. But, 100%. Yeah. And all we want to know is we, if, if we don't have CFO and procurement, what have we got? And finally, I thought Morris's judgment on the worst place to be here in CX was reporting to marketing. But of course, reporting to sales is the right It's thing. a journey. <laughs> Dave, thank you for being with me on this one today. It was great to hear from you and Morris. Catch up with you for the next Account Experience podcast. And by the way, if you're listening and you like what you're listening to, please don't forget to subscribe, rate it, and pass it on to your other people in the business. Thanks very much. Here's Adam.